this is Listeners, welcome back to the for, to a brand new episode of Work Celluloid. I'm your host Jack Rourke with my co-host Chandler Williams. How you doing, Chandler? What's the, what's new with you? I'm good, Jack. I've been uh you know enjoying my spring break that was extended. Yeah, extended due to circumstances beyond our control, and uh, that reminds me, if the audio sounds different for this, there's a very specific reason. Chandler and I are not in the same room for once. We're actually recording this via Discord call. That's probably going to be the normal for the next five or six mo- months, not only due to the coronavirus situation, which I'm assuming you're all aware of if you're listening to this, at least in the here and now, I mean, but also because I live in Vegas, so I, we can't be in the same room constantly, and I'm going to be here here until summer, at least until summer, so yeah, it kind of creates uh, the convenient things, but don't worry, we will work around it, and considering you're listening to this now, we have worked around it. Yes, and although we are on you know, separate sides of the country, we're still doing this, making it happen. Yep, I'm very excited to be doing this, because we today we've reached a little bit of my zone. We've officially recorded our fifth episode. Nice. Uh, we're almost there, <laughs> by a very, very wide margin. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm so tired, I just woke up. Oh yeah, what, what time is it talk about for today? you? Okay, yeah, today we're talking about Zardoz, which is the perfect film for this podcast. Absolutely. I was going to say, we wanted to do this for the first time. I was like, no, let's say this. This is a treat. Yeah. This is like, this 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 film is the epitome of the podcast. It's, I was worried that this was going to be, well, not weird, weird enough, because this was, I feel like it was going to be overhyped in terms of weirdness. Like, oh, this movie's so weird, you guys. I mean, like, it's coming from people who watch stuff like The Room and Troll. Like the easy targets when it comes to like so bad to go to or really bizarre move people who don't normally watch this kind of stuff. No, so anything is weird to them. Like exactly. Well, let's just play the trailer and let's and let you draw your own conclusions. into the vortex you will show me how you come to be here ah! tell me everything my name is zed Bozandos. i am an exterminator
Caution, caution, you are approaching the So yeah, that was a trip, to put it mildly. <laughs> I actually I mean, just got done watching it. It's a 70s movie. So that, there's a little, right, this movie, for those who are not aware, this is the movie where that photo of Sean Connery and the red mannequin comes from, of him only. <laughs> Fun fact, I mean, that, that photo, uh, I actually have, film. I have a printed photo or a copy of that, thanks to the fact that it, it comes with the sci-fi pack for uh, Cards Against Humanity. Oh, nice. <laughs> Would you consider this film a so bad it's good? Not really, actually. I actually I think it's more of a mixed bag. Or a bag or like an interesting failure. Or a failure because I mean, yes, there's a lot of parts of this that are gonna be funny. Or funny, but nothing about this was ever going to work work without like a god level execution. Like a, exactly. Or uh coming out okay. at any other time. Yeah, like it's it seventies. definitely it feels like a seventies sci fi movie in all the best and worst ways. <laughs> Exactly. Here's some of the notes I took. Naked Barbie doll people vacuum sealed in plastic bags. Feels like an early Pink Floyd album cover. One of the first movies to depict hologram, graphic projection, question mark. Like a weird fever dream combo of Quest for Fire, the original Planet of the Apes movies, Solaris, the Tarkovsky version, not the Soderbergh remake with George Clooney. Although that one is pretty good. Anyway, the the adaptation of The Time Machine by uh, George Powell, the one from the 60s, and um, every... or everything involving the War Boys from Mad Max. <laughs> I'm talking about thematically, and because everything about Sean Connery's whole little tribe thing does remind me a lot of uh, the whole, or, uh, the War Boys thing, like, i.e., trying to follow it, right, the words of a false, or a false god to commit violence. I'm talking about the broad strokes, of course. Yes, yes, very I reminiscent. Wrote, but what is? What about the uh, Rick and Morty episode? Oh God, right, the Rick and Morty parody. I think it only parodies the intro, but it is a beat-for-beat beat parody. Like, the design of the head is the exact... I don't think oh, we've yeah. described the plot yet, have we? We even described... It's so the, the exact is, same. I'm, gonna, I'm going to sum this up as, as best I can. Uh, so it's about this future civilization where man is reduced to primitive savage, and they fit, follow the whims of this giant floating stone head that they believe is a god called... called Zardoz. Zardoz. Sean Connery is one of these one of these savages, and he follows and jumps into the head and goes into this future civilization to find out what it's all about. 
That's the best I can sum this up. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty good summary. Yeah. About I mean, there's parts of this. I mean, like, I do think there is a actually a story here. It's not just arts I mean artsy, uh, let's just do weird for the sake of weird, but there I'll admit there are parts of this that I found borderline incomprehensible. Oh, I agree. I there were times where I knew nothing that was going on. I I didn't yeah, like, understand any of it. I'm like Look, I'm sorry for making all the drug jokes on this podcast, but I should have seen this on edibles. I, really <laughs> should have seen I want to know what drugs were involved in the making of this film. Possibly cocaine. <laughs> probably some. Probably hallucinogens. A lot of hallucinogens. Yes, in the writing. Yeah, but I was gonna. Speaking of the right, the writing. There were a lot of talented people involved with this, and not just Sean Connery. Which I think this was the first or second movie he did after quitting Bond. I, I no, this is the second. He did, he did a movie with Sidney Lament for first. I mean, was that the Anderson tapes or something else? Anderson tapes is also on the Criterion channel. Um, which, sponsored which by Criterion. Channel. Sponsored by Criterion, as per usual. And uh, before and before I get ahead of myself, which I already am, uh, our next our next movie will be on the Criterion channel. So uh, get on that. We'll tell you at the end of this. So back to Zardoz. Let's talk about the the or the guy who made this, a very interesting filmmaker called by the name of uh, John Borman. He was he made stuff like Deliverance, he did Point Blank and Excalibur. Those last two in particular are a favorite of mine. Like Point Blank, if you want to know Patient Zero for John Wick and that where he kind of stylized neo noir, watch that and Lace Samurai. Watch that, the John Pierre Melville film because John Wick basically is a modern day update of Point Blank. I, I Although agree. with uh, Keanu with uh, with Keanu Reeves instead of Lee Marvin. So, he also did um let's see here hell in the pacific and a few other mo- in the emerald forest he also did exorcist to the heretic which <laughs> which we might have to cover because that is talk about a batshit insane sequel to one of the greatest horror movies ever made like i'm not even sure i can call it bad it's just wow it's even weirder than this it's even <laughs> the guy had a vision i'll say that yeah you can you can Clearly see that this was the movie that he wanted to make. Oh, God, yeah. I can't even imagine anything like this escaping from the studio system now. Like, I remember <laughs> one of the notes I took was, definitely a sci-fi film from the new Hollywood era. It's way more transgressive than anything that could have been made prior, but way too weird to have been made later. It is yes. exactly from its moment of time, which I find... Is it uh, 1970? Uh, yeah, 1970. Was it 1972 or 1974? I don't remember. I'm... It feels early 70s. Yeah, mid. It is actually. Hang on a second. Yeah, 1974. I was right. Same year nice. as Young Frankenstein, and a few other things. Let's see here. Well, let's let's talk about the um, porn in this film. Oh God, the scene. Speaking of scenes that are going to look awful out of context, there is a scene where the where the futuristic society of women that are apparently more evolved than the men. Man, put Sean Connery in this room with a giant screen and just throw porn at him, <laughs> just in the hopes of getting him an erection. I am not kidding. That is an actual scene that happens <laughs> in this fucking movie. <laughs> Almost every scene in this movie, out of context, but just it's bizarre. So like bizarre. Scene, oh god, the opening scene, which not not the bit with the giant floating head that's parodied by Rick and Morty. I'm talking about the opening prologue with the black screen and the floating dude's head. And, Explaining I am Zardoz. 
I thought that, that is, I thought that, that was necessary. And it, uh, it helped give context to yeah, but also character. It's incredibly off-putting. Bizarre. It's so off-putting. <laughs> I never know about that specifically. I'm trying to find now where I put it. I'm like that part specifically feels like a studio note. You know, like the guy, like the producers saw dailies coming in for this thing. Like, hey, John, this is all great, but what the fuck does any of this mean? Like, <laughs> can you put in something at the intro? We're in the intro to explain this, for, and for the dummies in the audience, sure, great, great. I feel like it helped. Though. I think we're gonna need it. <laughs> they say this like nervously, like <laughs> as they watch him like be staring intensely from behind his camera. <laughs> Do another line. Do another line. I actually don't know what John Borman sounds like. Though I'd love to watch an. I'd love to hear an audio commentary from him on this. <laughs> like, explain oh, yeah. to me the thought Dirty process commentary. behind some of these images. <laughs> like it feels like the movie's about to break into a full on porno. Oh god! Oh god! That's a lot of seventies movies. Which it's funny that I watched. I just watched Paul Schrader's Hardcore last night. I'm like, well, what? What the hell kind of double feature would that be? <laughs> I was gonna say. I was gonna say the new Hollywood era. This movie requires more context in more than one ways. If you don't know your film history, the new Hollywood era is from, like, the late 60s to around the early 80s. And I mean the very early 80s, like, 1982, like, ni like the first half of 81. It's when uh, the studios were starting to fail with with big, big studio musicals and roadshows were starting to become less of a thing, thing. So they were panicking, just trying to find anything to, to stick with modern audiences. So they started taking more risks. This is where you get people like Spielberg. You get Coppola. You get Lucas. You get De Palma. You get Ernest Scorsese. You get Kubrick. Well, Kubrick actually being successful in this era, John Borman. And John Borman is one of those big names. I mean, like, Point Blank, he started out just at the beginning of this new Hollywood era. Then he moved on the interesting stuff like Hell in the Pacific like with uh, Lee Marvin and Toshiro Mifune, actually, the the guy from uh, Seven Samurai. Right, it's a World War II drama that's actually really worth checking out. Good luck finding it, though. Good luck. <laughs> I couldn't even find it on like, the Criterion Channel, or th I couldn't find it Right on Amazon, the closest thing I could find was like a DVD that was out of print, I don't know, five, ten years ago. I feel like I all the know. movies we talk about on here are pretty hard to find. Out of print. Well, I mean, that's kind of the goal. The goal is to introduce stuff where you can I like, if we were to do Pump Out the Volume, that would be the hardest to find, because that one, I think the last time I checked, the DVD was like out of print, and it's like $30. I'm like... Wow. That's a very different movie from this. It's a... It's about uh, Christian Slater as a as a shock jock radio DJ in high school. You know, trying to, or trying a guy who's so offensive that he ends up get, black getting blacklisted by the FCC. <laughs> Let's see here, waiting for Amazon to load because the Wi-Fi here kind of sucks. Stolen. Yeah, it's a it's in the closest you can find is like ten bu or in bucks, and that's used. Fun fact: That movie was one of the first scores by uh, Cliff Martinez, who ended up working with uh, people people like Nicholas Winding Refn. He used to be a drummer for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Like interesting dude. He also did Drive, the music for Drive. Back to Zardoz. Right. Let's see some other weird things. I already mentioned the naked Barbie doll people in plastic bags, vacuum sealed. I'm like, are they supposed to be dead? I'm like, I I like, think they're like new. Um, like, like specimens. Or yeah, yeah, but that's like yeah, the very the beginning weird... of the film. Oh yeah, I mentioned the new Hollywood era is because it was a very experimental time for movies. Which, on the one hand, it gave you stuff like Easy Rider and Taxi Driver and a lot of interesting, 
in films. On the other end, Zardoz. <laughs> I would, I would, t- I would put this. Um, I would consider this unsuccessful compared to. Yeah, I'd say it's inter- more interesting than it is successful. Like you could learn. Could this be remade? Like, do you think? Mm, like it, I, it like wouldn't the remade. Be the same. Well, I it think it wouldn't be the same. Like I think, I think it could, but you'd have to find the right creative voice for this. Like. Oh god, what would a Nicholas Winding Refn to write a remake of this look like? <laughs> oh, that would be. I mean, visually, this has or does have some really genuinely inspiring visuals. Not just like the floating head, but that whole like Hall of Mirrors sequence that Sean Connery goes through. That is oh, that was- some insanely cool. And that just makes me think, how much very of a cool. nightmare was that to shoot? Because mirrors are very, very yeah, very difficult to shoot. You know, that that's very- reminded me of. Obviously, I can remember. Wait, okay. Not Inception, uh, Interstellar. Oh yeah, the Interstellar. That, uh, that scene reminded me. Yeah, the, the ending of Interstellar. I could see Christopher Nolan um, admiring oh, yeah. this film. I mean, if he says he likes Michael Bay movies, which is an actual thing, you can look that up. Uh, I don't see him or why he couldn't be into this. Anyway, the thing I I brought up Nicholas Winding Refn because there's shots in this that remind me of the Neon Demon, like the. Oh, middle- oh yeah. Mirrors where Sean Connery is in the middle and the two other reflections are on the side. That looks like a shot straight out of the Neon Demon, but with different lighting. It's or shots that were um, like it. They're later revealed to be in a mirror the whole time. Oh yeah, that I is really true. like. Like the, the all the dream sequences are something. I was like, I think this movie. I don't think this movie is completely pretentious. I do think there are things it's trying to say about like masculine, about masculinity, about trying to stay, stay sane in the future. In the future, and religion like, and communication certainly i just don't think it's or in communicated particularly well no um yeah I feel like it, uh, trying, it could have been executed a, a little more successfully but um i, I think that's just part of the charm of this film. yeah i was gonna say someone said well, i think i read someone saying that this is the weirdest episode of the original run of star trek <laughs> it feels very star trek I'm like, there's a part. I also brought Planet of the Apes because of the part where they're throwing a, someone in a bag and they're riding horseback on a beach. I'm like, all I can think of when I see that kind of image is Planet of the Apes. Exactly. Like that. I mean, speaking of uh, sci-fi that era and the new Hollywood, there are some other interesting facts about besides uh, talented people. We already mentioned John Borman and Sean Connery. There's also Charlotte Rambling in the cast who's still acting to this day. Which anyway, we should also mention the DP. This was shot by Jeffrey Unsworth, whose credits are including, but not limited to, 2001 A Space Odyssey, Superman, and Superman 2, I think, even though that was released after he passed. We're in a cabaret and a bridge too far, one of the more underrated war films from that era. Visually, yeah, this is reminiscent of 2001. Yeah, but like, you can tell that this is, I think t- they actually referenced 2001 on the poster for this, if I'm not mistaken. Hang on. Zardoz poster. I, sh- I need to start doing more research for this before we do the podcast instead of in the middle. <laughs> yeah, same. We're learning. Anyway, the tagline is, and I quote, Beyond 1984, beyond 2001, beyond love, beyond death. <laughs> Zardoz. I am reading that in the exact dramatic voice I probably should be read, it, read in. It's an inter- It's a nifty poster, and it does sum up the, fit the movie very well. I'll say that. What Sean about Connor- the Wizard of Oz reference? Oh God! And we thought the ones in Wild at Heart were weird and incongruent. <laughs> the, name, the name of uh, the fictional god Zardoz in this universe. 
comes from the name, the book, The Wizard of Oz. Sean Connery, which after he goes through uh, through a bookshelf and like knocks him off shelves and gets irrationally angry at book. No, oh yeah, another no, I think Sean Connery really hates books. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway, um, he, he there's a scene in the movie where he goes to the, to the shelf, he picks out The Wizard of Oz. He's like, hmm, The Wizard of Oz. He put, moves his thumb. He's like, wait a minute. Covers up the wizard, the whiz and the of, uh, and the up part, and it says. Zardoz. Zardoz. And then he, like, starts crying. <laughs> I'm like, that made me, like, I knew that going in because I've, I've known bits and pieces about this movie for years as kind of a meme. Not just the Rick and Morty thing, either. That that photo of Sean Connery and the Red Man, he is a notorious, it's as notorious as the, as the Munchkin debauchery stories from, ironically, The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> you ever heard those stories? The past two films we've talked about involved The Wizard of Oz. Okay, I get I get wild at heart, but what about how did Under the Silver Lake connect to Wizard of Oz? I don't remember. Well, no, I mean this, and then Wild at Heart. Excuse oh, me. I was gonna say like, right. Anyway, I have not read those stories though. Oh God, they these are legend in the industry. Like the the Munchkins from the Wizard of Oz. What if I told you they were drunk as shit the whole time that they were filming? I oh, I feel like I've heard that. I'm like, you, you I was gonna say it's notorious to the point where I think Chevy Chase did a really awful comedy in the early '80s about it called Under the Rainbow, which is a shame because this story could be made into a really funny movie. That they did not make that movie, unfortunately, and they also wasted the talents of Chevy Chase and poor Carrie Fisher. So, yeah. Anyway, back to the stories at hand. It involved one of them got. I, mean, I remember just one of the stories. One of the Munchkins uh, was making eyes at another actor's wife, so uh, he brought two loaded guns onto the set. <laughs> what if it, wow what, there's another story about one of them getting so drunk that he he fell into the toilet and like 15 minutes after the lunch break ended like okay where did this guy go they walk <laughs> into the bathroom he's stuck in there like like a turtle on his back and they're like ah, we have to fish him out again they had to install cops on every floor of the hotel they were staying in just to make sure that they were behaving themselves like they hired hookers they 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 gambled they lit fires they <laughs> it's like Animal House. It's the Munchkins did this. Yeah, these were actual things. Like there, were, there were some not so funny parts. Like I think one of them grew up Judy Judy Garland, which oh wow, oof. Well, I think the last one when Munchkin actually passed away a couple years ago, if I'm not mistaken. Like survive. There's other interesting facts, like the fact that they survived. I mean that this, that they're technically Holocaust survivor, whereas there were uh, re there were immigrants trying to get and get out of Nazi occupied. I think Poland. I think Poland. I think it's impressive Somewhere that they're like an entire crew of yeah. uh, midgets. They're they're like, well, shit. This is better, better than being stuck, or stuck, or stuck in uh, that area in the country, or in uh, the world. So yeah, let's just do this. I'd rather. <laughs> which I mean, I don't blame them because, I mean, because hey, if I had to choose, choose between being in the movie set or death, I would choose the movie set every single time, or potentially death. Even though it was a very strange set. Oh, I'd imagine. I'd imagine it was, it was chaos. Like having them. Oh God! Back to the hotel story before we go. We go back to the main topic. There's a uh, one of the stories I remember. Like I think the concierge remembers one. Where their hands were too small for handcuffs, so uh, the police dragged them out in pillowcases. What, he's like, <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen a pillowcase kick and scream that much before. <laughs> oh, that's. <laughs> It's something, all right. I they need to write one of those books. I mean, like Easy Rider's Raging Bolt, 
Brandon Bowles or or Twild and Crazy Guys, but like the early days of SNL. Or Hellraisers, which reminds me of the hard-drinking early English actors like Peter O'Toole, Oliver Reed, Richard Burton. We're like, it, there needs to be that kind of book, but about this. Or just a documentary. I, I think there's a few good articles that are pretty, not holistic, what's the word, comprehensive, if you want to know more about this. I'll probably put a link to one of them in the description. Back to Zardoz. Back to Zardoz. What, what else have I... Oh yeah, there was one scene where, where in, specifically, I remember just breaking down laughing. Not even because it was laughable, because more I was like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> I mean, it's the scene where one of the, mon- there's a Monty Python looking dude, and they're, I mean, they're like, what? They're all gathered in a circle, like waving their hands over him. And it's oh, like at the table. At, when they're at the, I was like, the dinner table. What is, yeah. <laughs> I was like my jaw was on the floor and my heads are on my head. Like, what is going on? Like, what am I watching? I, I, I had a similar feeling. <laughs> I, it, I was laughing, but not in the way like it's genuine. Like this is hilarious. More, I have no other way to react. So, <laughs> <laughs> like, or oh, I just don't know what I'm saying. I'm like. And they're trying either. to like make him immortal, right? I they're either immortal. I think that's the last scene where we see him because I, from afterwards he's dead, or like he's just lying there unconscious. I'm like, either they, either that, either he's in a coma or they killed him. Probably the latter. I thought they um like turned him in, immortal, and then um he was like in a tuxedo for maybe the rest it was of the like, film. Or maybe it's like that thing in scanners or where it's like. Pa- Powerful, but it's too much for some people to where it completely breaks them. I mean, not with the head exploding, but although... I was about to say, boy, the PG was really lenient these days, but I remember... Oh, wait, this was an R. Huh, the MPA actually got this one right for once. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this thing definitely deserves an R, with it, just from the amount of nudity. <laughs> Which is pretty excessive. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was expecting this thing to be a lot more violent, honestly. Just based on the poster and the like, all the gun imagery, I'm like, surprisingly not. I mean, a few people die, but not. But it's not extre- extremely gory or anything. No, it's moderately violent, um, but he- heavy nudity. Oh god, like the '70s, so much. Like this sh- could have shown in one of those four- in 42nd Street theaters, like the ones that exclusively show like grindhouse movies and like Golden Age pornos. Like, <laughs> If it has the name Russ Meyer attached to it, it is probably showing in one of those theaters. It is probably. Oh yeah. There were some really good shots in this film. Oh yeah. Not just, I think the cinematography and just the produ- the production design is, uh, itself is really unique. Oh yeah. Like, Pretty how, impressive. Now, there's a good chunk of the early on in this movie that is very quiet and naturalistic. Where like almost thing out of well Solaris or one of like, which I've been meaning I mean, to I see. Which actually is on Criterion Channel, like Until the End of the World, which we will be covering until next week, and I will be discussing next week, because I'm I'm very excited to talk about that one. It is very long, but it is very, very heady, heady and very much worth your time. Yep. Although, Until the End of the World is much bigger in scope and much more expensive. Rather than Solaris, which, upon a cursory glance, you can probably tell. I mean, I can't show you, and just because this is a podcast, we and we're not having videos, so... Yeah, that's one of those you're going to have to take my word for it or do a Google image search. Quick Google. But uh, it, this film has good production design. It's it's oh, yeah. very distinct oh, yeah. and it's cohesive. I'm, I'm going to see if this thing got nominated for awards, because you'd be surprised by what gets nominated for Oscars. Like, I think Black Rain got it. One of my uh, favorite Ridley Scott movies. That actually got an Oscar nomination for sound design. 
which it should have, because it is it is legitimately a great 80s cop movie in an era of a lot of great 80s cop movies. You know, what else? I want to see if John Borman was... I do think he's legitimately a talented filmmaker. Like, point blank, one of the best crime movies ever made. Deliverance, I'm not a big fan of, but I see why it has a great reputation. Although, I must say, that is a movie with a lot of mustacheless Burt Reynolds, and uh, Burt Reynolds without facial hair is my least favorite variety of Burt Reynolds, I gotta say. <laughs> anyway, that that is also a movie invol- involving we- in a weird uh, mutant rednecks. Basically, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in the South. Oh, God, the poor things they do to M- Ned Beatty in that movie. I've actually been uh, to where they filmed that movie. So you're in Deliverance? Nice. Yeah. I was going like to say that was the river. Anyway, back to John Borman's work as a whole. He also did what I'd argue is probably his masterpiece, Excalibur, which is basically the only good version of the King Arthur myth they've made in the last 30, almost 40 years. I was going to say, the only other rat versions we have are probably, like, recently, are, like, one one with, uh, Cli- was it Clive Owen, I think? Antoine, Fu- Antoine Fuqua made it back in 2001, or uh, the Guy Ritchie one with uh, Charlie Hunnam from a few years ago, and, uh, yeah... The, be- the less said about that, the better. <laughs> yeah. So, Excalibur genuinely is an epic fantasy film, and it's re- it's beautifully directed. It, it's re- it's re- really um what's the word um operatic intense intense. It's got an amazing cast. Let's see here. One of the early roles of uh, Helen Mir- Helen Mirren, Patrick Stewart, Liam early Liam Re- Liam Neeson role too. Gabriel Byrne, Sierra Hunt, Hines, and uh Nic- Nicole Williamson as Merlin, who is one of the best portrayals of the role in my opinion. Sad that he did spawn like 15 years later, but hey, I what at least he got one good role out of that. <laughs> yep, he basically the use of mirrors. I really appreciated yeah, that we, that added a whole mirrors can look, right, John Borman does really shoot well. Like, there's a, a shot early on in Point Blank, in Blank, where this woman's just getting ready for, for makeup, and it looks like this endless chasm of mirror, mirrors, like reflections, and it's this almost psychedelic look. Look to him like, yeah, you really took advantage of the right of everything you could with the, with this kind of imagery. Up for that, I applaud you, man. What did What did you feel about the um the crystal rings they wore? Oh, I don't even know what to explain for that. I I I saw it as like an interpretation of um what is now the internet and like Siri. Oh yeah, like speaking of which, there's something that reminds me. Of, there's a point early on in the movie where Sean Connery finds this ring and it project basically a hologram like is this one of the earliest instances of holograms in movies like or at least the modern it could be because like it still it looks close to what we're trying to get to now with uh with uh jarvis in the more in the marvel movies and a few other or in those floating computers or like blade runner like it feels like a progenitor of that like oh that's pretty i was like i saw that like, it's, oh, it's that's pretty well pretty done cool. like for especially for its time especially like there's a lot to point out and laugh at. The effects, for the most part, minus the the prologue, are not one of them. Are not one. Unlike what they're trying to convey is ridiculous, but the effects themselves are not. Yep. And most of them, most of them seem to work. Yeah, I mean, like a lot of them are fairly convincing. I think a lot of it is when they shot back when they shot on location before they shot it all on a green screen. Like, not everything is obviously shot on green screens, but most, or no, the big budget stuff is now. Now, probably because it's cheaper and safer and, le- 
and a lot of other reasons. Some of it which are legitimate, some of which I still think are I less said the better. But I would say that the effects that don't work for this film, they definitely just add to the charm. Like they add they add to the vibe. For lack of yes, a better word, the vibe. The vibe. Do we mention the weird mutant tuxedo people yet? I don't think we have. There's a lot of feedback in this microphone, I just realized. Is that you or me? I can't tell. Moving on, the weird back to the weird mutant tuxedo people. I think they're supposed to be a parody of like the upper class or the bourgeoisie or something something, but I don't think that lands at all. No. It like it felt like this movie was I think that's trying to parody a nutshell. Okay, I can see what you're going for. I don't think you're accomplishing it at all. I admire you for trying though. Because who else is trying this? Especially now. It it this Oh God. This film feels very much like yeah, a parody. It feel, yeah, it does kind of feel like a parody. There are times where it does feel kind of self-parody. Which, are like, if this is a movie that is definitely of its time in more than one ways. Obviously, how weird it is, how his 70s it is. Did you see the opening logo? <laughs> yeah, very 70s. Century Fox, which means this is now owned by Disney. Oh my gosh. Which means it is probably never going to be released on the physical ever again. There's a good... I mean, if the fact that they're going to keep reading this in their catalog, even stuff as popular as Rocky Horror and Fight Club, love from showing in the, and even Alien, for God's sake, things from showing in repertory houses and stuff like the New Beverly or the Draft House, what makes you think they're going to show stuff like this? That's sad. It is. Um, you can't see it, but I'm pouring one out for this. <laughs> for my imaginary bottle. Shame. We're floating in the opening. Let's see. Here. I remember. Okay, there's just a, a very, very minor detail that I noticed that I actually kind of liked. When was the last time you saw a director's credit and a timeline credit in the same movie? Like from director John Borman in the year twenty. Is that a common? I don't think that's especially common. I mean, I thought it was kind of cool. Like, yeah. Oh, now, now that I think about it, that's the only time I've seen that. I'm like that. I'm like that. Yeah, that's kind of groovy. That's kind of groovy. This whole movie, I think, could be summed up as like an early Pink Floyd album cover, like Obscured by Clouds, that specific era. Yes, yes. And or, there's or a lot like of, out of, out, uh, yeah, out of focus imagery throughout the yep. entire film. Yep. This whole thing. You know, it's funny. Like a, we brought up, speaking of the Wizard of Oz, you know that cut of the, that's, that fan edit someone made where they recut it to uh, Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd? Oh, I, I, I very much know that, yes. I, very, I assume you were. I think you, I could make the argument you could do the same thing with this. Oh, definitely. Like, like, drop echoes in the background, and that would yeah. be wow. That'd be obscured, that'd be cool. obscured by clouds. Far out. That is a very far out. Album. Oh, absolutely. I think I have it on. Oh, I have it on vinyl. Yep. Yep. Nice. Obscure. I got metal on vinyl, which echoes oh, nice. on vinyl sounds amazing. Oh, I bet. Like I'm a like many people know that I also do, do a lot of drawing in my spare time and. I don't want to get or get give the game away, but I'm also working on a super secret project that uh, one of the drawings I required some inspiration, so I threw on I threw on the the LP of of metal that I had and went straight to Echoes and yeah, that gave me some good inspiration for it. I will do all in due time. I will divulge very very soon. I promise. Back to the matter at hand. Uh, why don't you give this out of ten? I would say a uh, six point two. I would say like a five and a half or a six. I think that's a fair. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It definitely tried. Yeah, like you know what I, I prefer a movie like this. 
we're gonna like this that isn't isn't technically good, but it is trying its heart out and does have something unique to offer. Say over a movie that's passable and doesn't really do much new. Yeah, and like um, I have an issue. Sorry, you're going. I was uh, I've been able to like see movies as they would be written on paper, and I'm sure this would be a much like better script to read like, than act, like, it, like oh yeah actually watching the film. This reminds me of like how the Star Wars prequels are the embodiment of the yeah, the vast vast valley between concept and execution. Like on paper, exactly, Star exactly. Wars, the Star Wars prequels are actually like a really good idea. He are observing reversing the whole hero's journey thing that he helped popularize, even if he didn't invent by. By kind of making the op or in this perspective, I'm like this op this operatic like back. I was like, I can see what he wants to go. I think the thing that I heard someone describe like I think it was 80s all over the podcast. Yes, that says why George Lucas is better as a collaborator than as his own singular vision. Vision is he he knows the stories he wants to tell, but he's inelegant at telling them. Which could, yeah, words right out of my mouth. I couldn't have said it better. And he was given yeah. full creative control for the prequel. Which, yeah. Oh, totally. Oh, definitely. Like he is the right. He's the only writer's credit. He's the only director's credit. My, this is where the studio's like, okay, George, let's step out of your way and hear what you have to do. And uh, for better or for worse, it's definitely his vision. I think it's for better in this case because time has been both oddly kind and oddly not very kind to the prequels and some. Like, there's some things that will never be good about these, but I'd also argue I think I appreciate them more. Yeah, I, they've they've definitely grown on me. Like Revenge of the, uh, like the only one, one of them that I'd call good is Revenge of the Sith, but Phantom Menace is nowhere near as bad as I remember it is outside of like the few things that are notorious about him because there is some, like Ewan McGregor is really good. Like his character is stiff as a br- as a, pl- a plank of wood, but he's trying. But he's but he does because he's Ewan McGregor, of course. And the guy, I wonder if Train Spotting is what got it. Speaking of drugs, we're in a drugs and science fiction. I wonder if uh, train spotting is what got on the roll as uh, Obi Wan Kenobi. I wonder if train. I actually have not seen train spotting. I don't love it, but I think it's really good. And good, and there is some next level stuff in it. That's a great soundtrack too. Too, which, uh, which, uh, I, I'm sorry. I really, really want to talk about our next, we're in next week's movie so bad. It, I've, of, heard, I've heard the soundtrack is amazing. Yeah, for uh, Train Spotting and Until the End of the World, both of which are definitely moments of their time. Like Train Spotting ha- has Primal Scream, Iggy Pop, like that use of lust for life in the opening is one one of those risky bit or in an old time rock and roll or Guardians of the Galaxy hooked on a feel. And like I am going to associate that song with that movie for the rest of my life, in terms of how strong of an impression it makes. Yes, that, that's how I feel about um, Where's My Mind, and in uh, yeah, in Fight Club. Oh, yeah. I would be sh- wouldn't be shocked if most people only know that song from the movie. There's a good, sh- yep. Anyway, I I still think call it an interesting value, like a mixed bag. Yeah, okay, this right. this film offers a lot, and um, there's a lot to, and I do think it actually has inspired. Like the whole War Boys subplot of Fury Road does remind me of the same t- thing that's going to be discussed here. With yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, that whole tribalism, worshiping false gods, and being driven to violence. Violence and stuff. Yeah, like there's a lot, there's a lot of like um core themes that I really appreciate in this film. Yeah, like their execution. Stuff that he's talking about a lot of like as science fiction goes, it is definitely trying. Like it is de- the thing about early seventy sci-fi is because this was the last moment where it was genuinely like science. I don't want to sound gatekeepy, but this was like hard science fiction where it's trying to discuss ideas and not just like whimsical pulp fantasy stuff. Like I love Star Wars and Guardians of the Galaxy, but that. 
Right, but that is more space soap opera, not soap opera, space opera than, than traditional science fiction. Exactly. And this film definitely reaches from He's that. not as challenging as something like this. He's not as yeah. yeah. Both in the literal, in the literal, this is making me consider th- ideas I haven't thought of before and more. This is going to be an endurance that's to sit through, isn't it? <laughs> then again, I, I've also seen a lot worse. I've also seen, I've seen a hell of a lot worse in my time. Yeah. What are, what will we be discussing next week, Chandler? Next week, Jack, we'll be talking about Until the End of the World. Ah, uh, yes, the early 90s sci-fi epic road or in road movie from Vin Vendors, who uh, most people would know from Paris, Texas, and uh, Wings of Desire. Which I am very excited to talk about. I, I'm probably, I've already watched it. I might, I think, I've stated on my letterbox that it's uh, a new personal favorite of mine. I'm gonna, probably going to watch it again, this time a little differently, since the movie is, for those who don't know, it's almost five hours long. <laughs> I'm not kidding. The exact runtime totals to 287 minutes. So about uh, four hours, 47 minutes. So we'll have a lot to talk about. Oh, to- oh totally. Like, I wouldn't be shocked, really shocked if that one reaches over the hour mark, honestly. It's also um, also heady sci-fi, so I wonder if we should start doing or anything or like a, a bit of Six Degrees where we try and find find a way to connect our, our last movie to the next. Like the, this one, there's a theme for The Wizard of Oz. Of Oz, this one, or the next one is going to be like heady sci, sci-fi, like abstract sci Although I'd argue, yeah. despite its length, uh, Until the End of the World is probably much easier to get into. I, I would be down for that, like tying a film together. Yeah, sure. Anyway, so uh, where can people find you on social media or Letterboxd? Um, you can find me on Letterboxd, which I'm very active on. Um, not so much on any other social media. Yeah. You can find me on Instagram. Um, see, you know, just Chandler Williams, but uh, Letterboxd, hit me up. You can find me on Letterboxd, too, just Jack Rourke. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the Renegade Jack, And you can find the podcast on Twitter at Warp Celluloid. If you ever have questions of the show, feel free to tweet it up at us when I'm thinking about starting up an email. I think I do actually have an email address for this podcast. I think I needed to in order to get it on Spotify and a few other platforms. But yeah, if you ever if you ever want to send us questions, I believe the address is warpcelluloidpodcast at gmail.com. Or even uh, considerations for uh, episodes. Like, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, if you ever have a movie you want us to cover and it's weird enough, we'll totally talk about it. Or about it, even if we don't like him per se, we'll probably get a lot of a lot of discussion out of it. And then, we'll, and if it's a movie that you think should be should be uh, broadcast to more people, by all means, well, I mean, yeah, that's what we, this is we'd for. be happy to. It's more, I mean, we're kind, I kind of started. It reminds me of why I started this podcast is to try and get more people to check this stuff out, out or at least broaden the basic knowledge. Like, as I have seen. And I'm not saying this is a weak means of bragging. I'm actually kind of seeing this as kind of a hey, I'm all, almost 20 and I've all, and I've spent most of my life doing this. I've seen like 2,550 films and which counting. Is impressive. Mes- like what? Which is impressive in one way and kind of pathetic in others. Like in case you're wondering <laughs> why I didn't get out much in high school, this is why. Yeah. Anyway. So, uh, once again, or next week we'll be talking about Until the End of the wor- World. That, well, not next week, in a couple weeks. We're still sticking to the bi-weekly schedule, because I think because I think that would be more convenient for me and, Ch- and Chandler, considering how we have other things going on in our lives. And uh, th- after, t- after tomorrow, 
we have college starting up again. Online yes, classes. Indeed. Thank you, coronavirus. You really, <laughs> you really threw a wrench into a lot of people's plans of, on top of all of the uh, sickness and death, of course. Which is also, um, I don't want to downplay that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, next episode. It'll be next uh, episode? Until, the, until the end of the world. Yep. In the meantime, thank you for listening. Stay groovy and far out. Keep checking out movies. Peace. Peace.